Hello, and welcome to the IBCD Care and Discipleship Podcast. I'm Craig Marshall, and with me today is IBCD's Executive Director, Jim Neuheiser. And we're going to be talking through a passage out of Luke, uh, that Jim, that you've been preaching through. And as I was sitting listening to your sermon, I thought, wow, that application really hits close to home. And I think it's something we see a lot in our counseling. And so I just thought it'd be fun to talk through this passage together and get some time to just apply it and think of how we'd use it in counseling. So you're preaching through the Gospel of Luke, and not everyone in our audience is called to preach, but we all do read the Bible. So one of the things I'm curious about is how does counseling affect how you approach the text as you study passages? I think the best thing you can do for your preaching is to counsel because it keeps you connected with people and their real problems. Some preachers live their lives in the Greek or Hebrew text and in commentaries and interacting with theologians, and they don't really understand how the gospel, how the Word of God is needed by their people to help them live with life as it's happening. And so when you're sitting with someone who's deeply troubled and you have to bring the Scripture to them... (laughs) Uh, and that's part of your life anyway, then when you get to the text as you're preparing a sermon, you you understand its meaning as you would anyway, but as you study, but then you're thinking, how can I present this in a way that it's going to meet the real needs that are in our congregation of, of ordinary Christians? I find sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, it it may be hard if I'm just thinking through the lens of my own personal life, I may miss lots of things, but it does seem like when you have people coming to you, asking you questions, or you're thinking about helping others, it almost makes you bring a different set of questions to the text. Do you find that as you study? I spend a lot of my life searching the word of God, which I believe to be completely sufficient to find the answers for desperately hurting people. And the most desperately needy person I know is myself. And so I need to read the Word of God, first of all, for myself. And I actually find when it helps me, it's going to help others in the same way. But also, as I'm reading and studying, as I'm involved in the lives of people, I'm seeing things that I'm going to be able to bring to them. I also find that whatever I am reading or studying becomes something I'm using Uh, in the sense that if I'm preaching in Luke, as you mentioned, probably if you were to watch me counsel on Monday night after preaching Luke on Sunday morning, probably in the course of that evening, I will use Luke a few times because that's been on my heart for dozens of hours in the course of the week. So I was wondering if you would um, read and then kind of just explain to us the the passage that uh, we talked about out of Luke chapter 9. Sure. Verse 51, so when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you not want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know of what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. 
So what do you find, especially contextually, I know we just dove into that passage, but what's going on in Jesus' ministry that's helpful for us? Well, verse 51, the first verse I read is a key turning point in that we've just finished the Galilean ministry in which Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom, the gospel, and he was confirming that through many, many miracles. The climax had come in about verse 20 of chapter 9, where Peter recognizes he is the Christ. Then Jesus explains what it means for him to be the Christ, that he must suffer many things. And, and, and now when you get to verse 51, he is actually going to suffer. He's determined to go towards Jerusalem. He's on the road, and in the context of Luke, it'll be the next 10 chapters, is Jesus journeying towards the cross in Jerusalem. And as they begin the journey, he chooses to go through Samaria, which is hostile territory, and that's where these events take place. A key part of that passage is the disciples calling fire down upon the Samaritans. And when we read that, we may not see any immediate relevance to our situation. I can't think of the last time I called fire down on someone. What's going on there and how, how do we understand what they're saying to Jesus? The disciples are not entirely wrong here in that when Jesus sends them ahead, he is, he is the king, he's the Messiah, and he sends them ahead to prepare the way. It's almost like when John the Baptist uh, into Israel prepare the way of the Lord. And so they're telling the Samaritans to prepare for Jesus. They're like envoys going ahead. And we read throughout the Gospels that people's reception of Jesus is something that will either be righteousness for them or judgment for them. Later, he's going to say in chapter 10, verse 16, that the one who listens to you listens to me, the one who rejects you rejects me. So what these Samaritans do in rejecting not just the disciples, but it says explicitly in verse 53, they did not receive him because they didn't receive the representatives. They were not receiving him. So the Samaritans were guilty of a very, very great sin in their rejection of Jesus, the Messiah. And when the disciples talk about fire from heaven, this is what happened, for example, in Sodom, when the Lord's emissaries came to Sodom and they were not received, fire came down from heaven. In 2 Kings 1, when the Samaritan, or, you know, the, from Samaria, the northern kingdom, then the uh, people came and were giving Elijah a hard time from the king, fire came from heaven. So the disciples saying these people deserve judgment and that they were right. But yet we see that uh, probably went a little uh, too far in their zeal or Jesus obviously didn't have in mind what they were thinking to do. Why wasn't Jesus on board with what they were looking to do in this situation? I think what the disciples do here shows how cautious we need to be, how we use scripture, because something can seem completely logical by inference. Okay, here I am dealing with Samaritans like Elijah was in 2 Kings 1, and they are unwelcoming to God's not just prophet, but the great prophet. So fire came from heaven before. Why not have fire come from heaven now? That seems logical. And Jesus' rebuke of them is really kind of Johannine, when you, where he did not come in his first coming to judge the world, but to save the world. And Jesus is saying, it's not time for that. 
by the way, there will be a time when you get to chapter 10, he says, one day those cities that rejected him, it'll be more tolerable for them than for Sodom. And so a time will come when those who reject Jesus will be punished. But right now, as he's going forth preaching the kingdom, preaching the gospel, now is the season of grace being offered, not the season of judgment. So as we think about that passage, you know, we see that sometimes wrongs are done to us or wrongs are done to others. And we have zeal well up within us that the Lord should do something about it. Um, how does this passage, do you think, intersect with our lives, the lives of our counselees? Yes. Well, you know, while I was studying this passage, I took a break and went to the gym and uh, at the gym, they've got this bank of TVs and on the TVs, certain politicians were on TV and I won't say who, but I knew these people to be evil people in the sense that they promote the death of unborn children. They promote other forms of immorality and they were strutting around and in their arrogance and I felt anger welling up within me. I, I felt tempted to pray almost an imprecatory prayer that fire would fall upon the place where they were meeting or something like that. And my heart was convicted that I'm no better than these disciples. I, I didn't literally think about the fire part, but I wanted these people to be judged. Yet even First Timothy 2 says we should be praying for our leaders that God might save them. He, he is even willing to save rulers who are wicked. Uh, so yes, we too can be tempted to the same kind of sin that these disciples were tempted towards. And I think some of the reason this can be so confusing to us is the disciples were wanting a good thing. They're defending Jesus' honor. And so often in life, the things that are upsetting us or angering us in many ways are good things that we're wanting. How can we keep that zeal in check? How can we know in our own hearts, wait, maybe this is going too far. Maybe I'm modeling the disciples here and it's not fitting with how Jesus would respond in this situation. I think a lot of this has to do with our calling that just as at this particular time, it was not God's calling on these disciples to be instruments of judgment, but rather instruments of mercy when we see injustice in the world, Romans 13 says the government has a certain calling to punish evildoers. Many times in scripture, we're told at the end of the age, when Christ returns, that judgment will come upon the earth. Peter says that the earth, as we now know, it will be destroyed by fire. But recognizing we're not in the season of judgment and our calling towards the lost is to bring them the gospel and, and even in terms of the wicked, to is not our job to seek revenge or to take revenge, but to leave that to God's wrath and God's time, as Romans 12 says. Good. So we can really step back and check our hearts. And what are some ways that you think, instead of calling down fire on someone, what are ways that we think people need to be punished? And we often carry that out. Well, in general, when people wrong us, our gut reaction is to respond in judgment. We're tempted to respond in anger. And that can be saying hurtful words expressed in that way. It could be at ignoring them or doing other unkind things. We become tempted to really detach ourselves from the gospel somewhat as these disciples did. And what we need to remember is both God's grace to us 
and also our calling to be messengers of mercy, which was at that time the calling for those disciples. Furthermore, as we are messengers of mercy, I often think of Romans 2, 4, that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so if our hope is when we see evildoers, and even when they do evil to us, it's God's grace and God's kindness being reflected through us that are the means by which God most likely will bring them to repentance rather than our judgmental anger. And so th- this seems to intersect for me with something we hear a lot in marriage counseling of if a spouse is sinning, a lot of times the ones, the other spouse thinks it's their job almost to call down fire upon that spouse, to make them pay for the wrongs that are being done, to help them see the error of their ways. And so how do we, how do we change the heart of, of that spouse so that they're not making the same sin here as the disciples? I think of Galatians 6.1, where it says, if someone's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him gently, looking to yourself that you will not be tempted. And so if your spouse has sinned, first you need to recognize that that's a sin against God more than you. And your calling is not to be his judge, but your calling is to be the restorer. God has called you to, to be the one, as you recognize also when he sins, it's his sin is reflecting that his relationship with God is broken. Whatever your spouse has done, they're not walking in the Spirit. Otherwise, these fleshly deeds wouldn't come out, and their great need is to be restored to walking in the Spirit. But you can only do that if you're walking in the Spirit, and you come alongside to help them and to restore them rather than to play God, which is what these disciples were tempted to do, and to let them have what you think they deserve, which could be anything as criminal as abuse or as subtle as grumpiness. And so that's our overall approach is um, seeking to restore an attitude of grace and humility. Then there are times where consequences need to happen. What are some um, criterion to keep in our minds of when we may need to to reach out to others for um, punishments to happen? Or how do we think through that? I think that we have the simple procedure in, in Matthew 18 that if you go to your brother for the purpose of restoration in verse 15 and he won't listen to you, you go to verse 16, which says you bring two or three others alongside, the purpose of which is to, as you confront your brother with his sin, to restore him. And you hope it'll end there. And and yes, there are circumstances where you go to Matthew 18, 17 and following where you may have to involve even more, involve the church. But the purpose in this is restoring the brother. It's a concern for the glory of God. And we need to test our motives because sometimes we want to pursue things because it was our ox that got gored. It was an offense against us. And we're much more concerned about that than we are concerned about the glory of God or the soul of the person who's done wrong. And then what about ever reaching out to the authorities? Like if someone has done a wrong, you know, sometimes people could hear this and say, well, our approach is to be grace and restored. But what about the authorities in those situations? Well, Romans 13 says that God has given the sword, figuratively speaking, to the government to punish those who do wrong. And so there can be matters in which a crime has been committed in which we even have a legal obligation to report that crime. If there's been sexual abuse of a child, I think there are cases of spousal abuse where there's no choice but to let the guilty party receive the 
God-ordained biblical consequence for their sin in the civil sphere. So uh, in that respect, uh, there may be a need to bring consequence. Likewise, if someone is not repentant, you know, if a spouse who's been unfaithful continues to indulge in that adultery, Jesus gives that spouse the right, the, the innocent spouse, the right to separate from the guilty spouse. So consequences aren't something we, we desire to do. That's, again, that's, that's when the heart of grace comes in, where consequences are brought reluctantly rather than almost joyfully. And so I, I don't want to bring the consequence. If I do, it's because I, I'm compelled to do so by your lack of repentance. Yeah, it seems like the disciples were almost excited at the thought of fire coming down on this village. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's some irony in this in the context as well, where earlier they weren't able to cast out demons and their faith was so small. And now suddenly they've got great faith that they, they can bring fire from heaven. They seem, like you said, kind of excited about that. Uh, but it's a warning for many of us is that there are oftentimes we as believers get something into our head. We think we've got a verse that supports it. They had verses from the experience of Elijah. We need to be very, very cautious, especially when it comes to matters of judgment. And some of this we may do face to face, but then social media sure seems to provide a platform where we may be calling down fire and uh, in a way that we might not do to someone's face, but it's probably wise for us to think through this, even in line of that, huh? Yeah, well, the proverb that says, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, probably would be well posted frequently on Facebook or other social media. Certainly another aspect application of that would be Matthew eighteen fifteen says, if your brother has sinned, first you go to him. It doesn't say you tell the world or gossip. And Facebook can certainly be, or other social media can be a form of gossiping about others or public judgment without going and trying to bring the restoration that the scripture tells us to do. Well, I was encouraged just hearing this passage, and there was obviously more to it in your sermon that we're covering other aspects, but just kind of thinking through uh, this this heart attitude of the disciples, how they went too far, and then how some of those principles can keep us in check. So thanks for explaining that to us. Is, is there anything else about it you wanted to say? Or I think the best preparation a counselor has is to do in-depth study of the Word of God. And it's been my privilege for more than 30 years to most of the weeks of my life and working my way through books of the Bible. And it's equipped me to be able to explain verses in their context to counselees. It keeps the word fresh in my own heart. Counseling isn't just being able to summon up a verse here and a verse there, just lifting it out of context. If you want to be a really well-equipped counselor, you want to master the Word of God. And for most of us, it means having somebody we can teach. It raises our game to be well-prepared. So the best preparation to be a counselor is to really study in depth the books of the Bible, not just read through it really fast. And then Counseling is also great preparation for teaching and preaching the Word of God as we learn to connect the Word of God to the needs of the people who come to us. Thanks for joining us, and I uh, hope to be with you on the next episode. 